Thank you, Marge. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 1. Uh, last Sunday night in our, in our Christmas celebration, we started looking at this opening chapter of John, and uh, this is really a, a marvelous section of the Gospels, and it's in unique in the sense that John begins his Gospel not at the time Jesus was born. We, we looked at that this morning in Luke, but, but John goes back. He goes back into eternity past, and he looks at, at who Jesus is is and has been for, for all eternity. And it's a, a wonderful section that, again, reminds us of, of who Christ is, but, but also reminds us of our calling as Christians. We, we don't want to forget that. So last Sunday night, we looked at the first five verses. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 6 through 18. So I'm going to read John 1, uh, beginning at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I think we're all aware that uh, not everyone responds to the gospel in the same way. Uh, many people, of course, and I speak to you tonight, who have responded to the gospel with faith. Uh, you have embraced Christ as your Savior uh, you know that, that Jesus is the Savior for sinners, but not all people respond that way. Uh, some people respond with indifference. A lot of people just don't care. Other people respond to the gospel with kind of an angry rejection. When I was in college, my, my freshman year in college, and one of my roommates and I were involved in an evangelism program at a local church, and we would go door to door, and we would, we would visit people. And I remember one guy... I was a pretty sheltered kid, I think, but I heard more words that uh, I probably shouldn't have heard in that one stop at the guy's door than I'd heard most of my life. I mean, he, he called us every name in the book and basically told us, don't ever come back here again. Uh, he had a, an angry indifference, not an angry indifference, an angry rejection of the gospel. Uh, the point is, is that people respond to Jesus Christ and to the good news in a, in a variety of ways. But every person has a response. Every person in this room tonight has a response to the message about Jesus. Last Sunday night, we, we looked at the fact that Jesus is eternal, that he is the creator, and that he is God, and that he came to earth to save all who believe in him. 
Uh, tonight, we're going to continue to look at the magnitude of this passage and, and, and notice the way that people respond to him. And there are two things we want to consider. First of all, there is the witness to the light, and then there are the responses to the light. So the witness to the light and the responses to the light. Our passage begins by by telling us about the ministry of a man named John the Baptist. Um, Children, you know who this is. He was a rather, well, he was a rather strange individual. Uh, His clothes were made out of camel's hair. Not sure how many of you have ever worn camel's hair before. And his diet was uh, locusts and wild honey. But, but we don't want the strangeness of this man to, to cloud the fact that he came with a direct commission from God. You'll notice that verse 6 says he was sent from God. He was not just some crazy street preacher. He was a man who had a commission from God. John was very much like a, an Old Testament prophet. In fact, we could say that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, you might remember that in the Old Testament, God often would send prophets to his people to warn them, right? To warn them of their sin, to warn them of their rebellion, to warn them to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. But the Old Testament prophets didn't stop there. They didn't only have a message of judgment. They also had a message of hope, a message of grace and, and forgiveness who, for anyone who would come to the one true God in faith alone. And that was John. John came with a warning, came with a very stern warning if you did not repent and believe the gospel. But he also came with good news. He he came with the good news about Jesus, and that really was his main thrust. The main focus of his ministry was not on his weirdness. It was not on his attire. It was not on what he ate. That The focus of his ministry was Jesus Christ. It was to point people to Jesus. You'll notice that's emphasized here in verses 7 and 8. It says, he came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That was John's calling. John's calling was to call people away from themselves, away from their sin, and to look to Jesus Christ. We see the same thing later in this passage. If you look down at verse 29, it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a godly man. John was an important man. He was a unique man in redemptive history. But but just because he was unique doesn't mean he has nothing to teach us. Um, John's ministry and and John's message does have direct application to us today, specifically in two areas. First of all, like John, we are called, we are not called to proclaim ourselves, but we are called to proclaim Christ. You know, one of the things that the church has struggled with throughout its history is the cult of personality. One of the things that the church has struggled with and continues to struggle with is the desire to elevate men. If you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, you might remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about this. He, he talks about this church that was elevating men. He was, he was saying, each one of you says, I follow Paul. 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. In other words, it was a sad reality that that church was divided over the men that they were following. They weren't so much following Christ as they were following these men. And unfortunately, there are, there are areas in which this kind of continues on today. There are many Christians who are unfortunately predominantly followers of men. They may not say it, but they could very easily say, well, I follow John Calvin. I follow Martin Luther. I follow John MacArthur. I follow R.C. Sproul. I don't mean to to downplay or or to minimize the importance of godly men whom the Lord has used in his church, but these men are not our Savior. And John's ministry is a reminder to us of that. And, And these wonderful men in history, whether it's Paul or Peter or MacArthur or Sproul or Calvin or Luther or Spurgeon would be the first to tell us that. Don't follow us, follow Christ. But it's a very real temptation, especially I think in the world in which we live today, that this desire to follow men. The church I was converted in, down in Long Beach, California, had a, we had a pretty well-known pastor among evangelical Christians in that day. This is in the, this is in the late 70s, early 80s. It was, a, it was a pretty big church. It was probably 2,000 members. One Sunday, this, this pastor, the senior pastor, got up and he announced that he was leaving, that he had taken a call to, to another church that was about 30 minutes away. The first Sunday that he was gone, half the congregation had left and followed him to his new church. Now, I don't think that's what the Lord wants for his people, to, to be a church that, that follows a man. Our calling is to make much of Christ. Our calling is to magnify Christ. Our calling is, is to say essentially to people, look at what an amazing Savior we have. We're not called to follow men. We're called to follow Jesus. And John the Baptist is a wonderful example of that. Look at verse 15. It tells us he bore witness about Christ. Verse 29, he points people to Christ. Verse 34, he talks about Christ. Verse 36, he talks about Christ. Jesus Christ is our theme. He is our main focus. And and there is to be no other. And the reason for that is because only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can can free us from our sins and free us from the judgment that we deserve. And so that's the first lesson that we take from Paul's minute or from John's ministry. We don't follow men. We follow Jesus. But there's a second thing that we want to learn here from John's ministry and that is that like John, we are not called to proclaim our own message, but we are called to proclaim God's message. It, it, it's very subtle here. It it may not really stand out to you, but but don't miss what we're told here in verse 6, that John was sent from God. John came as an ambassador. And, And to be sent as an ambassador means that you don't come with your own message. You you come 
with the message of the one who sent you. John didn't come with his own message. John didn't survey the people of his day and say, what would you like to hear? What would you like me to talk about? He didn't consult the trends of his day and then kind of craft his message around that. He came from God and he came with God's message. And and this is really all I have to proclaim to you. This is the only word of life. This is the only truth that will never fade away. And it's not just true for me as as a preacher. It's true for us as Christians. We, We go out into this world as Christ's ambassadors. You are his witness in the world. I am his witness in the world. We're either good ones or bad ones. But but we go out into this world as his witnesses and and we go out with God's message to this this lost and dying world. We don't go out with our message. We don't go out with our hobby horses. We don't go out with what we think people need to hear. We, We go out and we proclaim what God tells us people need to hear. And that is that we are all sinners We all deserve judgment and only Jesus can save us from that judgment and that Jesus can save the very worst of sinners. I I may be uh, stating the obvious to you, but it's important. It, It really is, brothers and sisters, it is important that this church never deviates from that message. Many churches have, many denominations have, Many churches and and denominations that were once faithful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ have moved on to focus on something else. The the PCUSA, the the Presbyterian Church in the United States, is is an example of that. A denomination that that once was a, a great herald for the gospel produced many wonderful, faithful godly theologians and and now they ordain homosexuals women in office and and they've in many senses denied the gospel and so let us never forget this church must never forget that that we are called not to proclaim our message or the message our culture wants to hear but, but we proclaim the message God has given to us. And, and that's why we pray. That's why we pray that God would give us the grace to never veer from this message. Now the second part of this passage is, is we see the, the different responses to the light. John the Baptist came preaching Jesus. How did the people respond? Well, the first response is found in Verses 10 and 11, it says, He, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, children, you might remember that, that Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth. And, and for 30 years, that's where Jesus lived. Everyone knew him. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew who his family was. For 30 years, he lived in Nazareth. And and when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, at the age of 30, what do people do? Do do people go, yes, the Messiah is here. Jesus, we believe in you. We worship you. We follow you. How did they respond to Jesus? Take your Bible for just a moment and go to Luke chapter 4. 
Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and, and notice verse 16. Luke four sixteen says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and, and we're told that he, he gets up and he reads. He specifically reads from the book of Isaiah. Now notice verse 18. This is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads that from Isaiah. And by reading that, he's making a very bold statement. He's basically saying, this is talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah. I am the Messiah. Now, how do people respond? Drop down to verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's how they responded. Not not only we don't believe in you, but we want to kill you. And as Jesus' earthly ministry went on, that, that continued to be the pattern of people's response to Jesus. Children, think, think about all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He, he healed diseases, right? He delivered people from demons. He raised dead people. He controlled storms. He created food. He did all these things testifying to who he is, but but people wanted nothing to do with him or they wanted to kill him. And these these weren't pagan people who had never heard of the one true God. These weren't pagans who had had never heard scripture before. These were God's own covenant people. Jesus, we hate you and we want to kill you. These were God's people. These were people who claimed to be followers of the one true God. This is one of the ways that people responded to him. And it should be a warning to us tonight. It teaches us a couple of things. First of all, It it teaches us that it's possible to grow up in the context of the gospel and and yet to reject it. It's possible to grow up in a believing home. It's it's possible to to go to church every Sunday. It's possible to have received a solid um, Christian education and, and yet to live in unbelief and rejection of Christ. Secondly, though, it also teaches us that that, that what is needed is nothing less than the powerful, regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. We, we all have to remember this and, and not forget it, that unless we are given spiritual life, uh, unless we are given the gift of faith, we will remain spiritually dead and in unbelief. You and I didn't believe because we were smarter than the unbelievers. You and I didn't believe because, well, we were better than they are, and so God said, here, 
I'll, I'll let you believe in me. That's not the case. Without the powerful work of God the Holy Spirit, we remain dead. Dead in our sins. And, and, and as a point of practical application, this is, this is why we pray earnestly for our children and our grandchildren. That this is why we pray for them daily that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that God would give them life, that he would give them the gift of faith. We, we can't save our children. We can't change their hearts. We can't make them believe. But, but we are called to faithfully give them the gospel, faithfully point them to Jesus, and, and faithfully, diligently pray for the Holy Spirit to work upon their hearts. And so parents, don't forget that. Don't, don't forget that you must pray for your children regularly, daily, that, that God would, would give them his, his saving grace. So this is one of the responses that people have. Rejection of Christ. Unbelief in Christ. But those aren't the only responses. It's not the only way that, that people respond to Christ. If you look at verse 12... It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now let's go backwards here. If you look at verse 13, John tells us three things. First of all, he says that regeneration or, or spiritual birth or spiritual life does not come first by blood. What does that mean? You are not... Regenerated, you are not born again, you are not given spiritual life by virtue of blood. It, it, it means that, that God does not give you spiritual life because of who you're related to. I, I, I say this a lot because Scripture says this a lot. Just because you were raised in a Christian home, just because your parents were believers in Christ, that does not automatically mean that you will go to heaven when you die. Unfortunately, there, there are people who, who live their lives as if that's the case. Mom and dad were Christians, and so I'm a Christian. John tells us here that's simply not true. Now, now yes, when a, when a child is baptized, God gives our children many, many wonderful promises in their baptism. But our children... Children, I say this to you tonight, you must believe. You must embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. So first of all, John says, regeneration does not come by virtue of blood. Secondly, spiritual life, spiritual birth, regeneration does not come by the will of the flesh. It's talking about what you do. It's talking about your efforts, your attempts, your, your good works. I, I, I talked about that this morning, that... We, we don't get to heaven by climbing the ladder of our good works. Spiritual life does not come because of what you do. Heaven is not attained by your own efforts. That is really every other religion in the world outside of Christianity, isn't it? Every other religion, in some way, will tell you you get to the afterlife on the basis of what you do or don't do in this life. That's where Christianity is so unique. 
Every other religion will say you, you've got to do the right things and you can't do the wrong things and if you do enough of the right things and you avoid enough of the wrong things, you might make it when you die. But, but John says, no, it's, it's not by what you do. And then third, he also says spiritual life does not come by the will of man. See that little verse, that little phrase, by the will of man. I think John is getting at the fact that that we're not saved through the efforts of any other human being. Not only can you not save yourself, but your parents can't save you. Not only can you not save yourself, but your spouse can't save you. Not only can you not save yourself, but your, your pastor, your elders, your close friends can't save you. So it's not because of who you're related to. It's not because you've earned it. It's not because someone else has earned it for you. What's our only hope? John tells us that we must be born of God. Only God can give us spiritual life. Only God can work faith in our hearts. And so as you sit here this evening and I look out at, I think everyone here would claim to know Christ, to believe in Christ, I I, I say to all of us tonight, the the only reason we believe in him is because we have been born of God. Because God has done that for us. And, And when God works regeneration in the dead sinner's heart, when he gives us the gift of faith to embrace Christ, I want you to now back up and look at verse 12. And there is a wonderful, wonderful reality. Christian, this is true of you tonight. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of you are um, Bible underliners. Some of you aren't. That's fine. But if you like to underline in your Bible, there are three words that I would recommend you underline here. First, in verse 13, or verse 12, rather, is the word gave. Gave. Children, this is a word that that we're very familiar with this time of year, right? Some of you may have opened Christmas presents this afternoon. Some of you are going to do it tomorrow. But you were given gifts. Mom or dad or someone gave you a gift. We we give gifts to others, and, and, and when we receive a gift, it is just that. It is a gift. God gave us, John says, salvation. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. He gave it to me as a free gift of his grace. And over and over, this is a a drumbeat of scripture. God gives us what we don't deserve. Most famous verse in the Bible says that God gave his only begotten son. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Ephesians 2 tells us that that by God's grace, he has given us the gift of faith. This is the greatest of all gifts the gift of Jesus Christ. Second word to underline is the word right, R I G H T. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how often you reflect on this, and I would confess I don't 
reflect on it often enough. We have a new status, don't we? We have a, we have a new position before God. You, you think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that, that we are all by nature children of wrath. That, that is our status by nature. In other words, by, by nature of who we are, sinners who sin against God, we deserve God's judgment. There's not one person here this evening who does not deserve the eternal judgment of God. But, but now, now that God has given us spiritual life, now that we've been regenerated, born again, now that he's given us the gift of faith by which we may embrace Christ as our Savior, that's no longer who you are. That's not true of you anymore. How often do we think about that? Christian, you are, you are not a child of wrath. Instead, Paul says about us in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's our status. That's our position before God. That's an, an amazing reality that is true for every Christian. And then the third word to underline is the word children. Because of God's saving grace, because we've been united to Christ by true faith, we are now God's dearly loved children. God of the universe, the God who created and sustains everything, the God who rules over all, is our Father. Heidelberg Catechism says this in Lord's Day 9 about the fatherhood of God for the Christian. It says, the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. He's your Father. And then it goes on and it says, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. It's a wonderful thing to know that God is our Father. And then the message of Christmas is summed up, isn't it, in verse 14. The word became flesh, right there. There it is. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a wonderful thing it is to think about this every year, every December. The eternal Son of God took on a human nature. He became a man so that we might have a saving relationship with the triune God. Continue to look to Christ, continue to rest in him, continue, continue to rejoice in everything that he has done for you, and, and continue to remember that, that your salvation was a gift from him to you, that you now have a new status before him, a status that will never change, and that he, through Jesus, is your father. And he will turn to your good. Whatever adversity comes to you in this sad world, 
And he will always, always be your loving father. You belong to him. Don't forget that. And he will never let you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reality of what we have in Christ. We pray that we would honor and glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.